Hello and welcome to this special Innovation Forum podcast, the final episode of 2021. We've had a wide variety of guests on the podcast over the past year, and I've looked back and picked out some of my favourites. So coming up are some highlights from interviews that have stood out for me. First up is Sarah Rogerson and Emma Thompson from Global Canopy, discussing the 2021 Forest 500 report. Then we'll hear from Innovation Forum's Toby Webb talking with forest expert Simon Lord about the unintended consequences of just planting trees. Ford's Jim Gorin will give his insights into the growth of the electric vehicle market. Dole Foods' Xavier Roussel will talk about how to engage consumers on sustainability matters. Forest Trends' Steve Donofrio will give his views on the rise and rise of the voluntary carbon market. And then Molly Jensen and Rachel Howie, pupils at the High School of Glasgow, will give their views on the COP meetings and their hopes for the future. At the start of the year, I spoke with Sarah Rogerson and Emma Thompson from Global Canopy about the conclusions of the most recent Forest 500 report. 2020 no deforestation targets had been universally missed and the new research highlighted a lack of deforestation commitments from investors and the finance sector in general, particularly in North America. The report also demonstrated that a focus on palm oil has led to more commitments in that sector than, for example, soy and other commodity supply chains with significant deforestation risk. Emma, do you want to tell us quickly what the headlines are from the 2020 Forest 500 report? The latest assessment found that 63% of the financial institutions with the greatest influence on tropical deforestation haven't made any deforestation policies for the companies in their financial portfolios. So that means that $2.7 trillion of financing into the companies with the greatest exposure to tropical deforestation aren't covered by any deforestation policies. And then for companies, just about a third of the companies haven't made any deforestation commitments for any of the commodities that they're exposed to through their supply chains, and only 25% of the companies assessed had made a deforestation commitment for all of the commodities that they're exposed to. And then further, when we look at the implementation from companies in particular, a third of the companies with deforestation commitments hadn't reported on all of their deforestation commitments this year. What about financial institutions in particular? Are there anything that stands out and regarding geographies perhaps or in financial institutions? Yes. So we looked at the geography of financial institutions without any deforestation policies. And while 33% of those headquartered in Europe hadn't made a deforestation policy, 81% of those headquartered in North America hadn't made any policies either. There's some big names in that list, aren't there? I mean, the one that stood out for me was BlackRock. Given that their CEO, Larry Fink, every year publishes a letter that he sends to company CEOs, and the most recent one talks about there being a climate crisis and the need for immediate action. So, Sarah, why do you think it is that BlackRock publicly saying there's a climate crisis, but yet does not have a policy in deforestation. Why do you think that is? Really interesting question, Ian. It's a big gap in a lot of company and financial institutions' strategies on climate change is that they are continuing to ignore deforestation as part of that strategy. It is an interesting trend that we see that there's less of this in North America than in other areas. So there's a suggestion that maybe there's less pressure, but it is worth remembering that there's no less exposure. We're looking at global institutions and companies. They do finance companies in forest risk commodity supply chains. That's why they've been selected to be in the Forest 500. So they absolutely need to be looking at this, especially if they're making strong statements on the climate crisis and what they're doing about that. They absolutely have to be including deforestation in that. I think there's an element of the fact that you know North America, a very litigious environment, and so financial institutions and others aren't going to make commitments that they don't have to, because then they may well be held to them. Do you think there's an element of that in play as well? 
definitely could be a factor into it. So I think then we need to be shifting the risk because it needs to be much of a risk to not have these policies so that they do put them in place. And then, yeah, that we can then hold them to account on those. Yeah, there needs to be a shift in materiality, doesn't there, in terms of what actually is a material risk for, the, for these businesses. Emma, in terms of commodities then, what does the picture look like across different types of tropical commodities? There was a big disparity in the number of commitments made by companies on specific commodities this year. So we found in 2020 that company commitments on palm oil and pulp and paper were much higher than they were for commodities, including soy, beef and leather, which really lagged behind. Sarah, I mean, why do you think that is? Why is it that palm oil is so far ahead? Is it simply because that's where the most noise has been? That definitely will be a factor. You know, there's been campaigns on palm oil for years and really attention on these other commodities, including soy, has only really been getting more attention in the last year or so. So that's definitely one. And another could be the availability of certification schemes. So there is a well-known certification scheme in palm oil, which is quite readily available. But there is very much less certified soy in the world. So there is harder for, for companies at the downstream end of the supply chain to source certified soy. As Emma says, we need to expand that pressure to get the more attention on these other commodities as they are such key drivers of deforestation in South America in particular. So Emma, I wonder, while soy still lags behind palm oil, what's the direction of travel? Are you seeing an increase in the number of companies dealing with their soy deforestation risks? This year, we actually added a new sub-indicator, which looked at company commitments on indirect soy in particular. We actually found that even among those companies that had made a commitment on their overall soy exposure, the majority of those didn't include indirect soy. But some of the key leaders in terms of indirect soy were among kind of supermarkets um, and particularly food companies. So it's clear that there is kind of a positive direction of travel, particularly in terms of indirect soy. Okay, well, obviously interesting to see how that develops in future reports. Thinking about deforestation and more generally, I mean, 2020 was a big year. So many companies had committed to zero deforestation targets in 2020 via the Consumer Goods Forum pledge in 2010. And then also, of course, the, the New York Declaration of Forest in 2014. No one has reached zero deforestation. Sarah, I mean, why do you think that was? Were the company simply too ambitious? There's certainly an element that most of the companies, when setting those targets or signing up to those collective targets, didn't know how to implement or how they were going to achieve that. So definitely we've seen some leaders making a lot of progress, but are struggling to implement and really reach that final amount to completely deforestation free. But what's more of a problem is just the number of companies and financial institutions that haven't even started on this journey. So we're not going to achieve global deforestation free supply chains if only a few of the companies are acting and are trying to implement these commitments it then makes it difficult for those leaders to meet their final targets because there's other companies in their supply chain or in their sector that are not acting. And therefore, globally, we're going to still have this problem. So you've come up with some recommendations following the publication of your report. So Emma, just take us through what Global Canopy's uh, recommendations are. Yes, so we have two key recommendations or kind of levers for change that we are proposing to help deliver deforestation-free supply chains. The first one is that all financial institutions need to have a policy on deforestation um, for their companies and their financial portfolios. As financial institutions are really lagging behind in comparison to companies, we've set that out as a key minimum for the financial institutions that they need to have. And then in addition to that, we have also outlined some key recommendations for due diligence legislation, as due diligence legislation is looking likely in the UK and maybe even the EU. 
we've outlined some key elements that that due diligence legislation needs to have. So particularly looking at transparent reporting and also the inclusion of financial institutions within due diligence. How do you characterise what a due diligence approach is on this, Sarah? So we're looking for companies and financial institutions to be carrying out due diligence in their supply chains and their portfolios, being able to identify and mitigate any risk of deforestation in their influence, then reporting really transparently on what they're doing. So it would be a kind of continuous improvement approach. In the first year of any due diligence, the, the companies and financial institutions may not have a huge amount of information to go on, but they would be looking to continuously improve as there's more transparency, they'll be able to do better risk assessments, better mitigation and better reporting. And based on community buying companies and also financial institutions, how do you characterise the desire for them to move to this due diligence approach? So we've seen a lot of support from the leaders for this due diligence approach for there to be legislation. And that's because they are looking for a level playing field in the markets that they're operating in. They are doing a lot of work to try and trace their supply chains, source more sustainable commodities, but other companies are still doing nothing. So they are really supportive of a legislative approach that would mean all companies would have to come up to a a minimum standard and to start looking at these same risks. Thinking in terms of legislation then, and also looking at the results across different jurisdictions, what sort of legislative approach do you think is most effective? As I said, we are currently outlining the key recommendations we think that the UK and EU due diligence should have. In addition to just requiring reporting and hopefully applying to financial institutions, a key part of that would also be applying to all forms of deforestation, so including both legal and illegal. So currently the UK bill is only looking at illegal deforestation, but a significant majority of global deforestation is actually legal. So as part of that recommendation, legislation that covers all forms of deforestation would not only help stop illegal deforestation, but also all forms of deforestation, and that would have a much wider reach. And also the due diligence proposed in the UK and the EU would cover global companies. So any companies operating within the UK or the EU would be covered by that legislation. Even though they are only based in the UK and the EU, that legislation would have wide reaching impacts on countries across the globe. Sarah, I mean, 2021, I think will be needs to be a, a big year. What do you expect the headlines in the next Forest 500 report to be in a year's time? Yeah, absolutely. 2021 should be a huge year and we're hoping that there's a lot of momentum going forwards into this year and all the events that are happening throughout it. What we'd hope the headlines would be would be a big step change and a lot more attention from the finance sector in particular on deforestation. So they've been lagging behind for seven years ever since we started these assessments. There's been fewer policies on the finance sector than in companies and we really really hope to see much more attention from them, much more action. And as Emma said earlier, a bare minimum of setting clear deforestation policies. There is reason to hope that we may see that. We're already getting more attention from financial institutions to understand what our assessments are and what they could do to improve their approaches. But obviously, we are aware that we've been calling for this for the last few years. So we're continuing to call for it and hope that this is the year that we see that big change. Do you think the fact that there's a big, everyone's talking about COP26 in Glasgow this year, do you think there's a sense of momentum building? Definitely. I think it was you know, starting to build to last year, which unfortunately it's had to be postponed to this year. But I think that that's still there. There is still this huge momentum around those events. All the more important that we do need to draw attention to the importance of deforestation as part of climate strategies. 
and make sure that that's included at these events. It does seem, as you say, that there's a momentum building. The change of administration in the US is going to help, but let, let's see what happens as we get through the year. But for now, thanks very much to Sarah Rogerson and Emma Thompson from Global Canopy. Thanks, Ian. In March, sustainability experts Simon Lord and Innovation Forum's Toby Webb talked about some of the challenges around reforestation and forest restoration. They discussed why it's often simpler to just plant more trees rather than to try to restore degraded forest, but that just planting without proper planning can lead to monoculture and will not recreate biodiversity and soil fertility. One of the reasons everyone wants to plant trees at the moment is clearly because of climate change. But we've got to be quite careful, haven't we, in how we do this, because not all forests and plantations and tree planting projects are created equal, are they? Certainly not equal. And, you know, I think just because of climate change isn't just the other driver. The other one is loss of biodiversity. And if you start looking at biodiversity, then there has to be a habitat to actually preserve those species. And so I think the other driver is a restitution to this planet in which we restore the forests as part of the rich biodiversity in the world. And and I think those two are the big drivers for what we've been through. Yes, certainly true. It's definitely a year of nature and biodiversity. Well, that and rewilding, isn't it, Toby? I mean, you know, certainly in the UK, people are talking about rewilding because we've gone through COVID. I know there's a great deal of chatter on social media about whether or not rewilding and the fact of loss of loved ones can be combined and so that people plant a tree for every person who has actually been lost due to COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, trees attract, you know, they're, they're an emotional subject. People feel very strongly about them. But from, from a corporate point of view, Simon, if a, a company comes to you and says, we're not sure about some offsetting projects for one reason or another, but tree planting sounds good to us. And we've got this carbon footprint and we've done our scope one, scope two, and we do need to do some offsets. So tree planting sounds pretty good. Where should we look? What do we do first? What would your advice be? Well, first of all, I would tell them you've come to the wrong company. You know, I no longer work for, for corporates anymore. I'm, I'm independent. But when I was CSO of, of Simon Darby, it's a plantation company. Plantation companies still haven't got their heads around is the fact that, in a sense, they're also land management companies and they have a huge amount of of land available. A company that came to me offering to plant trees on our behalf, um, we would probably turn down. And the simple reason would be that we have our own tree planting programmes, or we did when I was there have our own tree planting programmes, because we own some of the land and therefore we can actually afford to do it. A lot of these people that come and actually say, well, we can plant trees on behalf and, and that way you can offset and they've done the calculations and you know, X number of trees equals so many tons of CO2 equivalents. You know, your first questions are is, well, you know, where is it? You know, what type of trees are you planting? Is it a mixture? Of, are they endemic to the native species? Or is it some kind of monoculture that they're actually going to be setting up? The next thing is, is how are you going to go about it? It's not easy, actually, creating a forest. We've all done a little bit of gardening. We've all done a little bit of planting. And the tree planting is is not quite the same. It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. But if you're actually creating a forest, then that's an entirely different thing. You have to get the mixture right, the composition of the forest. Nature does it brilliantly on its own. 
if you're going to do actually a human-made one, then you actually have to try and mimic that as far as possible. I mean, we've got quite a bit of experience of riparian or buffer zone expansion near rivers, uh, widening them, making them into corridors. They're just slightly different function than to actually trap carbon, although, of course, they're going to do that. This was for a wildlife movement and also, indeed, for physical protection of, of riverbanks and the land beyond it. You know, some of the lessons learned there is that, first of all, it's, it's quite easy to plant trees. It's another matter to maintain them. And so my other question to a company would be, all right, well, what are your plans once you've built? How are you actually going to maintain it? You know, what kind of effort, what kind of budget is there put aside for basically forest management? What we learned was that just taking native species, you know, essential really, and creating these buffer zones, what we needed to do was plant, first of all, pioneer species that would provide the shade because most of the endemic species actually needed the shade cover in order for them to start flourishing. And the other problem is that because the land is often being cleared and you're clearing it and you're actually planting from scratch, is that all these invasive species, which normally would be under control in a balanced ecosystem within a forest, they actually need to be dealt with. And if you're going through a pesticide-free or herbicide-free approach, then the only way that you can do that is actually manual labour and to physically remove climbers and the weeds that compete with these young sap. But we did in, in Sabah with the Syme Derby Foundation, and it's called Yayasan Syme Derby, we built 5,400 hectare forests from scratch. All palm planters know how to plant trees, and sadly, we always plant them in straight lines. And indeed, that was the approach that we did for the forest. Planting them in a random way actually is not very productive and takes about 12 times as long to do. So we had these rentices in which the trees would be planted. Now we worked out the spacing, uh, optimised in advice. It's, it's about two metre by two metre. So you're essentially planting a tree in a two metre by two metre quadrant, a little square, and you want to get a composition mix in that area. And you're looking at somewhere about 25 species and you're wanting to get a stocking density. And it varies, but somewhere between 600 to 1,000 trees per hectare. And we've worked out the, the cost of doing that. We tried it at 2,000 trees per hectare, which was a bit dense. But it was needed because in the early stages, you know, we weren't very good at this. And so there was actually mortality. You know, that's something, the attrition rate. You learn by doing this. And then with Wetlands International and a great guy called Basil Parrish, we worked with them and they were restoring a peat zone, which is on the edge of one of the biggest forests. And it was just very small areas, but also learned a lot in how to basically recolonize these peat areas. And again, they chose rentices, these straight lines, to, to get the trees, first of all, established. Later on, nature will do its own job and infill. But again, they had huge problems, not from what you would expect, but actually from local people, and I think egged on by some local councillors, politicians, who urged the people, because there were counterclaims on this land, although it was NGO land, and they actually kept on going in and burning down the young seedlings. 
And, and I remember Simon Darby used to have to send its own fire brigade to help them because it wasn't our project. We were just involved in it. And to keep putting out these fires before they could finally get established. There, there was complete start from beginning, plant these trees. In other areas, they were planting trees at irregular intervals to in- allow natural encroachment and, and build that. In other areas, we planted 1.3 million trees now, all of which are endemic to various states in Malaysia. And these are on parcels of land, which for one reason or another, thank goodness, were never planted with oil palm. There's tremendous areas available, even in a country like Malaysia, where infilling and tree planting can occur, let alone when you start talking about the temperate areas and the green spaces in the UK where I live, where you can do it. So do we talk about tree planting? Because it's very, it sounds very simple, because forest restoration is so difficult. I mean, I went to a forest restoration project in Sumatra just before COVID happened. I was blown away by the complexity of it. Um, it's not something I thought about much, but visiting the nursery, and I've got some video of this, listeners, which I'll post for, for you to see underneath the podcast or, or, or somewhere in the notes. You know, you look at the number of species you have available to you to try and put in, and it's literally square metre by square metre on the edge of this seriously degraded forest, which have been degraded over the last century or so. And it struck me it was an unbelievably complex and painstaking process where you've got to make some very difficult choices about which species you might favour over others. Is that why we talk about tree planting? Because forest restoration is so damn difficult. Yeah, I think it is. And, and, and also, you know, dare I say, it's, it's shades of green, isn't it? 50 shades of green when you start doing forest planting. People do it for lots of reasons. But like any forest or any tree planting starts with good nursery management. And the best people to select the species are local people, communities. I know that Eric Wacker in Aid Environment is working very hard in Indonesia on community forests. And I know that the work that Syme did with Nestle's on these restoration of these buffer zones, I mean, basically, Syme Darby had bought a plantation and with it the liability that the earlier owners planted right up to the edge of a river, which is a no-no under the RSPO, but also a no-no when you think about it in common sense. So it began this program of restoring along with Nestle. And there we engaged with the local communities and particularly the women's group who seemed to have better green fingers than the men. And essentially they would gather the seeds from the surrounding forests um, after the infrastructure was put in. They would manage and maintain the nursery because, I mean, rubbish in, rubbish out, not being afraid to cull at the nursery level if something doesn't look perfect pays off in the long run. I mean, it works with oil palm and it works with most tree species. You know, you plant something that's in poor health. You know, if you go to any garden centre, you know, you don't pick something that looks a little bit poorly and expect it to flourish. Um, it's not animal rescue. It's actually planting trees. So people talk about planting trees because at every step in the process for forest restoration, it is complicated. And I'm not saying it's complex, Toby, but it's it's complicated and it's process-driven, it's rate-driven. But when you put it all together, there's a lot of moving parts that need to be made to work. 
In April, Jim Gorin from the Ford Commercial Vehicle Team talked with me about how electrification of corporate fleets can be taken to scale, tackling corporate scope 1, 2 and 3 emissions in the process. He explained why the commercial vehicle sector in particular is one where electric vans and trucks can be very competitive when compared with combustion-based alternatives, taking entire vehicle life costs into consideration. We're going to be talking a little bit about the electrification of transportation in the US uh, more broadly. So, Jim, what's the market share of electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids in the US at the moment? And how does that compare with the rest of the world? So, overall, electric vehicle market share remains relatively low, but the, the share is actually growing at a high rate. So, according to IHS Market, all electric vehicles reached a record market share of 1.8% in 2020 in the US, which was nearly 300,000 vehicles. And when you look at the month of December 2020 specifically, the share was 2.5%, and that's more than triple the share three years ago. However, the largest growth globally in 2020 came from Europe, actually. Market share reached 6.2%, which was up 142% year over year. This was due to a combination of attractive new models and supportive policy and incentives, which we can unpack in a bit. Uh, and Europe actually outpaced China in electric vehicle sales in 2020 for the first time since 2015. Uh, market share in China was about 5.5%. So in total and in, in absolute terms, about 3.2 million plug-in vehicles were sold in 2020, up from 2.3 million in 2019. But that compares to around 65 million total vehicle sales globally. So while the absolute volumes remain relatively low, the overall growth story has been pretty incredible. And I see that only accelerating from here. So the numbers you've quoted, just to be clear, they are plug-in hybrids and all electric vehicles combined. Some of the numbers like the 1.8% market share in the US in 2020, that is specific to all electric vehicles. But the 3.2 million plug-in vehicles, that's inclusive of both plug-in hybrids and all electric. What are the differences in market penetration for commercial versus personal vehicles then? So in the US, penetration for commercial electric vehicles has remained low as well, even lower than for personal vehicles in some cases. A big reason for that has been just lack of supply. Uh, up until last year, if a commercial customer wanted an electric full-size truck or van, they would have to go through a custom upfitter for essentially one-off products. However, uh, that changed last year with an explosion of new announcements and plans for new electric models from established automakers and, and new startup companies. The reason is the market recognized that commercial customers are perfect early adopters of electric vehicle technology. And I'll lay out the reason for three main points here. So first, commercial customers only buy the capability they need. 300 plus mile range is not as important to the majority of customers. And we found that actually analyzing millions of miles of telematics data that our transit cargo van customers on average travel just 74 miles per day. And routes are typically much more predictable. So range anxiety is actually less of an issue for commercial customers. Second, commercial customers are hyper-focused on total cost of ownership. So we're finding that electric vehicles provide advantage here due to lower energy and, and maintenance costs. And finally, many commercial customers are setting ambitious carbon neutrality goals and sustainability goals due to pressure from their end customers, employees, governments, and investors. 
So electric vehicles combined with low carbon electricity for charging would be a key piece of meeting these goals. Therefore, due to these priorities and the imminent increase in electric truck advanced supply, we actually see market penetration for commercial accelerating quickly in the coming years. It strikes me that in part of the kind of blitz of net zero commitments that we're seeing from so many companies at the moment, you know, as part of that, there essentially is a widespread acceptance that going all electric is the route for land-based transportation. So what's the route map necessary to achieve that? And, and how does that compare with the reality at the moment? I see the route map involving four main components, and that is supply, charging, education, and good public policy to support Unpacking each of those individually, first on on supply, we need an increased portfolio of all electric vehicles to meet all customer use cases. So this includes models with longer range, increased payload and towing capability, which is increasingly and specifically of interest for commercial customers, as well as lower cost options. And this will be enabled in part by advancements in battery technology, both with increasing energy density of the batteries and increasing scale to bring down the cell costs. Material sourcing will also be crucial here. Uh, Next on charging, we need to continue to build out infrastructure to support all customer use cases. So public charging networks actually get a lot of attention, but in reality, most charging takes place at home or at the workplace. So in the case of commercial customers, we estimate only 10% of charging would occur on public networks. So therefore we need to develop the right hardware and software solutions for customers to implement the charging solutions that work best for them. And utilities will need to ensure the grid is ready and able to support the increased electrical load through pricing signals and optimization. Uh, Third on, on education, we need to inform customers, both commercial and retail customers alike of the benefits of electric vehicles while simultaneously debunking the myths. And that is actually a key strategy we used for the launch of the Mustang Mach-E, which launched at the end of 2020. Uh, Customers were concerned that they wouldn't be able to drive in the snow or that it wouldn't be safe to charge the vehicle in the rain. All of course were untrue. Uh, And what we found is that once someone drives an electric vehicle, their purchase intent rises significantly because they're just so fun to drive. So education is key. Finally, on policy, the right incentives need to be put into place to help drive early demand. And that can include tax credits, rebates, charging infrastructure, subsidies, et cetera. And and we can unpack that further if you're interested. Can we talk a bit about supply of the materials necessary? I mean, there's a lot of news and there has been for some time about countries kind of hoarding or taking control of all the supply of the rare earth metals that are necessary for battery technology and other technologies. How much of the, is the supply of material a barrier to really rolling out electrification and transportation in the US and elsewhere? So the supply of materials is critical. What we're seeing is actually innovation in the space that could make the bottleneck there a little bit less. And so cobalt and nickel are two very important materials in battery cell technology. And for a long time, those materials have only been sourced in certain areas of the world, providing that bottleneck. However, new battery technology such as solid state and other types of cathode and anode technology is actually removing the need for large amounts of some of those materials. So as constraints happen, innovation occurs to leap over that, which is exciting news. Is innovation the, the way forward then rather than an ongoing battle over the rare earth elements? Yes, innovation will be key here. 
there is a significant supply of those existing materials that are used in batteries. So luckily we do have a, a long roadmap for acceleration on nickel and lithium and cobalt. But as we continue to expand and fully electrify our fleets globally, there'll need to be diversity in technology. And we're seeing that some emerge now. Let's talk about public policy then. So what progress in public policy are you seeing that's helping? What are the further changes that you think are necessary? Europe can actually be looked at as a, a good case study here on how supportive public policy can drive results in the market. So Europe deployed what I see as a one-two punch of regulations that drove increased supply of electric vehicles while also deploying incentives to increase demand. So on the supply side, automakers are required now to reach an average of below 95 grams of CO2 per kilometer. And this has resulted in a shift of vehicle portfolios from automakers to include more all-electric and hybrid vehicles in order to comply. However, the supply is only good if there's demand to balance that out. Uh, and this was achieved through a combination of incentives such as tax credits, rebates, and registration breaks. So for example, France offered an incentive of over $13,000 per electric vehicle to bring down the purchase price for consumers as part of a green recovery plan last year to rebound from the COVID-related downturn. Uh, another policy that we're seeing that has impacted commercial customers in particular is the zero emission zones in certain large European cities. And this has driven the transition to all electric and plug-in hybrid solutions that are able to comply. And what further changes do you want to see? So in terms of further changes, especially in the U.S., what we're seeing with the proposal from the Biden administration is increased incentives, especially at point of sale, as opposed to tax rebates would be interesting to bring down the purchase price the day of, as opposed to relying on tax appetite. And also regulations that provide one standard across the nation, whether that's more stringent fuel economy or emissions regulations or zero emission vehicle mandates, but ultimately that level of consistency would be preferred. In the summer, Xavier Roussel, Sustainability and Marketing Director at Dole Foods, and Toby Webb discussed how augmented reality experiences from QR codes and other technology solutions can help brands use sustainability messages to market products. Roussel explained how the next steps will involve providing consumers information to calculate carbon footprints. Many customers are now fully engaged with the story behind the products they buy. Tell us about your job. I don't come across that many sustainability and marketing directors. You know, I see sustainability in communications, sustainability in public affairs sometimes, but sustainability and marketing have often been two sides of the same coin at best, <laughs> certainly on different ends of the spectrum sometimes. Tell us about the role you perform at Dole, and then let's talk a bit about your consumer communications journey. It's very typical for the, the produce industry. I started in marketing, but along the way, sustainability became such an important role. And we're coming back here 15, 20 years. Sustainability started to play a very important role in what we do. And very naturally, about eight years ago, I took on the sustainability responsibility in addition to the marketing one. It's a very unusual combination, but for us, it's two sides of the same coin. These are not two different topics. This transformation process that we have, it's done through marketing and it delivers in substance all those sustainability initiatives that we are doing. It's a very logical combination for other businesses, not so much. 
But I think that's one of the characteristics of the fresh produce industry. Well, I think a lot of other industries would like to get there. And part of the problem is that marketing traditionally doesn't understand the complexity of sustainability or feels unable to communicate it in a simple marketing message. So let's talk about how you've been not necessarily simplifying sustainability, but using your marketing efforts to engage consumers in, in the issue. We have been an organic farmer for 25 years already. And at the very beginning of this journey, we had to convince consumers about what organic was. And they didn't know, and there was a fair amount of skepticism. And at that time, believe it or not, people didn't believe that organic products were actually organic. So they saw the labeling, but they were very skeptical about what was behind the labeling. And that's how we started, initially by having to prove that our products were actually organic. So we labeled every piece of fruit with the farm code and every consumer could actually track their banana cluster to the organic farm where it was produced. And we would explain them what was organic was about, but we had to show them the PDF of the organic certification. That's how we started. And it was very well received. And from there, this topic just grew on us. This focus on transparency became more and more important. The journey sort of continued very naturally. And we thought, hey, you know, what we've achieved in organics, let's now extend it to conventional. So we're talking here 2010 or so. And we started to certify many of our conventional farms to Rainforest Alliance, for instance. In the 2010s, these first decades, we certified many farms. And then our initiatives, our foundation, our social work, our environmental work, we've, we're looking for a way to show it to consumers without making marketing claims that would not be substantive. So to stay true to what we are doing, we use the same coding system and we allowed consumers to look back, track back their fruit, back to the farm. And we showcased what effort we were specifically doing in that farm or in that country. We address the needs of every country separately, differently. Their social need, their environmental need are different. And therefore we were able to show that sort of more local effort and through this farm code system. You started with say, a PDF on a website and a product code, which is obviously only the most committed customer might want to really explore that. That was obviously a first round system. Where have you got to since then? Right. Of course, the PDF at the time looked okay. We're coming from that far. But of course, in 2012, we essentially moved or basically focusing on the, on the user experience. That's the marketing piece of this now. And we use Google Street View to basically have people walk the farm digitally. We were able to convince retail buyers of our effort and what we're doing, but we had to fly them out. We had to take them for a week, which wasn't possible for every consumer. Our focus was to say, well, what's the next closest experience we can deliver to a consumer? And we used that Google Street View technology where in a, sort of in a, from a subjective angle, you're able to walk the farm and you'd have an audio guided tour and you'd receive like secondary content portraits of people walking on the farm, explanation about the practices. This whole farming world was coming to life through that Google Street View experience. That's 2012, 2013. And that was also very well received. We had about half a million of those tours or, or, or visits to our website initially. And people were already paying attention. This was initially launched in, in Northern Europe, essentially Germany and, and Netherlands. The way we could measure this is by having people stay on average around four minutes of attention, which you know anybody that in the website would rate as really a lot of time if you consider people's attention span. That really delivered that organic 
type of experience. It's non-invasive from a marketing standpoint. Like people do it on their own terms, on their own time. Whenever they read it on the banana and they, oh, I'd like to see that and would come online and very low bounce rates, probably 85% of people who typed the URL stayed on the page, which is very low. We had a lot of success with that initiative 2013 to 2016. And we rolled every product line, organic bananas, conventional bananas, pineapple. We rolled them out over the years. So moving the story on then, are we now to the point where we started this conversation between you and me, where I picked up a bunch of your bananas in Riga in Latvia and I saw a QR code and I thought, oh, this QR code stuff doesn't really work. It used to be really clunky and useless. So I thought, oh, I'll just point my camera at it and see what happens. And next thing I knew, I was walking around what augmented reality tour of a Colombian organic banana farm. And then I thought, wow. And then we happened to speak for a conference. And I said, well, let's do a podcast about it. And so is that the next stage of the technology of, or have I missed a step? User experience, again, on websites, the bar is constantly going up. So for us, it was a very natural step to integrate virtual reality. So we tried Oculus and there is all the teething issues, right? We've been all through this. You know, people had their sort of these Samsung phones and putting in the Oculus and it ate your battery in five minutes. So we, we went through all this, all these issues. But now that VR is moving more mainstream, I think we are seeing definitely this as, you know, what people expect now. You want to wow your consumers. The PDF of the early days would obviously not cut it anymore. That's how we made the experience evolve. And then the technology is just the way to convey the message, but the message itself stays the same. It's, it's essentially understanding what is behind a product. And that's what we marketeers and sustainability officers want to do is we want to explain people complex realities, nuanced statements, but make them come to life with the people at the source. And that's what is driving us. So when did you make the switch from the kind of Google Street View to the VR, augmented reality, whatever we call your current iteration? When did that happen? Uh, 2017, 18. As soon as those gamers sets came into the general public, of course, initially it was, it was just a bunch of gamers. That was it. They evolved very rapidly. And then you could do it with just a one brand of phone to several brands. Initially, the most problematic issue was how to capture it, so how to film in VR. So we had to go around the plantations with a huge camera sets. Today, you can do it almost with your cell phone or a device that size. Initially, filming was the biggest issue, like how do you capture a 360-degree image? But yeah, we've gone through all those steps of improvement and looking forward to the next steps, obviously. So the marketing question is clearly, what happened? You've described some of the numbers in your earlier iteration from PDF to Street View, but now you have sort of pretty much the latest technology and it's become a lot more democratic. What's happened numbers-wise? When your CEO says to you, Xavier, why are we spending money on this? What do you say to him or her? We have this steady flow of visitors that didn't change. I think VR hasn't increased the numbers dramatically, but it just keeps us in there. The area we are focusing on, I mean, the next steps really for us is to improve on the data sites, what we are delivering from the experience. So the times when you could sort of show videos and a few anecdotal facts, there was that period. I think what we're looking at right now is to integrate blockchain, for instance, or an aggregate of data in direct relation to the product you buy. When you buy banana, now you know where it comes from, you know the farm, you may know a few facts about it. You're going to give in a lot of context about the farm itself. But the next frontier for us, and we have started to roll out blockchain or similar technology throughout supply chain, is to be able to say, well, that's my carbon footprint. 
for this particular farm or this particular area. This is for us the next move. Being able to, thanks to blockchain, to aggregate a lot more data and fruit and vegetables are the food group with the lowest carbon footprint. No matter whether you farm them locally or far away, so they were known for nutrition until now, but when you look at the carbon footprint, very low. So that's a message we also need to communicate across. And we believe through these sort of technologies, this is how we are going to take our transparency experience to the next level. Shortly before the COP26 meetings, I caught up with Stephen Donofrio, Director of Forest Trends Ecosystem Marketplace Product and co-author of the State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets 2021 report. We discussed why the carbon markets were set to exceed $1 billion in 2021 and why they will continue to grow as companies voluntarily take action to decarbonise their operations and broader impacts as far as they can and using credible offsets to account for what's left. You've just released your new report, The State of the Voluntary Carbon Markets 2021. What are the headlines from this research? Well, I mean, this has been a really incredible couple of years for the voluntary carbon market. Despite the unfortunate global circumstances related to COVID-19, we have watched this market continue to grow over the last couple of years and really just exceed expectations across the board. In 2020, we saw the market get close to $500 million which is the highest annual value since 2012. As of August 31st of 2021, we found that market transactions have already exceeded $748 million. This is really, really important to acknowledge because while 2020 was a banner year from 2012, this means that 2021 is on track to being a market that will exceed $1 billion. And this is going to put 2021 as a year over any other year in terms of total market value size. It's a really just sort of exciting moment to be in with the market. There's a lot of interest. And what's really driving so much of this is the recognition of nature as a solution to tackling climate change. And with a particular look at what is called Red Plus, reducing emissions from deforestation and land degradation, among other benefits to communities and ecosystems. Those projects have seen a huge increase from years prior. And it's really just for all types of projects across the board that we're just seeing a tremendous amount of interest and and opportunity. Is that then the major driver, the fact that there's recognition of the value of these projects? And I guess also the fact that companies are now really seriously getting to grips with their entire emissions, scope one, two, and three. Completely. This has always been thought of as a carbon management continuum. We need to first understand where our impacts are as global economies. We need to then recognize where the opportunities are for driving emission reductions. And then along with that is to understand what the costs are involved with those activities. And as companies are now planning further and further into the future with more significant aspirations and commitments to drive climate neutrality or net zero, there's no doubt in many companies' minds that the long-term goal can only be achieved with short-term successes. And those short-term successes, at least in the near term here, are being widely recognized as being within the voluntary carbon market. So this rapid and very significant growth in carbon markets is driven by this awareness, this awareness that has come over the past several decades of calculating emissions to then acknowledging those sources, acknowledging the opportunities, and recognizing that we really just are never going to be able to get to Paris Agreement goals unless we take advantage of every option that we have in front of us. These more and more ambitious net zero goals, climate neutrality goals, carbon negative, there's 
so many different terms to wrap your heads around. There are significant opportunities for us to increase the credibility and validity of these commitments. There's no doubt about that. But we need to acknowledge that this is a very significant moment in time for the climate movement where it is no longer simply about solving climate change for climate's sake, but it's about really representing business value and business opportunity. Are there any particular sectors that you're seeing that are now really engaging in the voluntary carbon market and using them as a tool to enable them on their journey to net zero? There are a number of sectors, so it's a long list and a wide variety. But at the top of that list in just the last few years are are companies that are consumer-facing, So consumer goods companies, consumer discretionary sector companies, those that understand that there's a public perception as a reputational hazard if they are not taking action on climate and offsets provide pathways for them to communicate about their ambitions and their efforts and their investments into this in a different way than talking about changes of fuels or building efficiencies and lighting and other things that they may have already tackled. But other companies from the energy sector are showing significant uptick in purchasing of credits. Some of those might be end users. Some of those might also have trading desks of their own. But the reality here is that the companies in the energy sector are not only purchasing credits to reduce their own footprint, they're offering more and more products to their consumers, just like they did in renewable energy credit markets years ago. But now there's also carbon credit products that they're offering to their consumers so that when their consumers are buying electricity from them, that they can then also buy carbon offsets to neutralize those emissions that are resulting from that energy. You look at aviation companies, there's an interesting shift over the last few years in terms of moving away from Red Plus credits into clean cook stoves. But without going into all the details about all these sectors, there's a a wider recognition that as some of these big initiatives like the Voluntary Carbon Markets Initiative, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, that terms like high integrity, high quality credits, while those terms are still really being defined that companies and speculators are joining into this to say, well, let's get in front of this, let's buy credits that they perceive to be high quality, high integrity, and start prioritizing large purchases at higher prices for those types of credits. Do you think this is coinciding with the companies that are buying the credits? Are they decarbonizing their own operations and supply chains as much as they can alongside this? We're not seeing companies as offsetting their way to net zero, I hope. This is one of the large misperceptions that we've explored in the past in some of our reports around buyers. You know, we think of this as more or less a myth that that companies are avoiding their obligations to reduce emissions by purchasing offsets. The evidence from a few years ago when we, we last published a report on this showed that it was in fact more that companies who had a greater understanding and were reporting their full footprint of greenhouse gas emissions scope one, two, and three were the companies more likely to be offsetting emissions. And that's likely because they found that there are parts of their scopes that they just cannot address on their own. And so offsets were providing a pathway to reductions. It also found that companies were more likely to invest in offsets if they were investing in the heavier, deeper investments into their own emission reduction activities. So spending more money to reduce their own emissions, that those were the companies that would be more likely to be purchasing offsets. So, yeah, so I think we feel fairly confident at this point that despite this market growing to a potential 1 billion plus market in 2021, it's still just a very small percentage of what is needed to getting to the Paris Agreement goals and companies acknowledge that. You're right. I mean, we're nowhere near the scale 
that the Mark Carney task force that you referenced earlier says is necessary for the global economy to get to a, a net zero position by 2050. What do you think needs for this scale to emerge? One of the first pieces was to try to establish a long-term demand signal. And that, I think, is what we've been discussing and, and is what is becoming more and more secure. So that is fundamental. Now, that helps to unlock opportunities for investment, for funding. And what we are doing at Ecosystem Marketplace as a key foundation in this market is to bring transparency. Transparency in terms of what's trading, what are the prices, what are the attributes about projects that are driving different prices or different demand that is essential in order for these markets to scale, in order for investment to really funnel into this space so that projects can have the best chances at being successful when they're in tropical forest countries or in different geographies, and even here in the United States or in Europe. We all need transparency for this globally connected, but at sometimes disaggregated market to really have opportunities to scale at, at the rate that the Carney Task Force has, has, has identified. I was lucky enough to be in Glasgow for a few days during the COP26 meetings. While in the city, I was delighted to be invited to speak with two members of the High School of Glasgow's Eco Group, Molly Jensen and Rachel Howey, who are both members of the fifth year, which is the penultimate year at school in Scotland. We talked about their impressions of having COP in their home city and how hosting the meetings has impacted awareness of climate change issues for them and their friends. Molly, why don't you tell me what you've been doing to mark the COP26 meetings in Glasgow? So as members of our equal group, we've recently organised an assembly to help promote awareness of COP26 within our school. And we found this really beneficial to both of us because we were able to kind of look at what the aims of COP are more in depth and also how we can see the relevant ones that pupils will be interested in. Rachel, anything you want to add to that? We also attended an event at Nando's and I found it very beneficial to find out what big corporate companies are doing to decrease their impacts on the environment and I also found we watched this big assembly which was on eco and climate change and I found that I found lots of information about like what our options are to decrease our carbon emissions. Were there any things that you were particularly impressed by that you saw companies doing? I found that there was quite a few interesting things. Nando's had a bag and what it was is that they were giving it to developing countries and what it would do is instead of using any power or electricity to heat things up, it was kind of using technology similar to hand warmers and what it would do is that you can make stews and things for families and rather than using like electricity and fire and coal and things, instead it wouldn't use any of those which meant it was decreasing the carbon footprint. The meetings are here in Glasgow, in your city. Has the fact that they are here, the COP26 meetings, has that increased you and your friends' awareness about climate change, do you think, Molly? I definitely say it's increased our awareness of climate change, but not only that, because everyone in my generation, our generation, knows that climate change is the most pressing threat to our lives, our future. And that's why I think COP26 has shown us the impact of 1.5 degrees Celsius and why this is such a crucial target to meet. Because what we were both quite shocked to find when organising the assembly is that the UK's current Climate Change Act is set for 2 degrees Celsius. And when you look at the differences between 1.5 and 2 degrees, you see that there's 170% more floods. And this is obviously disproportionately affecting developing countries. And that's why I think it's so important that governments take this really seriously to make sure that we're not widening inequality. 
Absolutely. And it's not just going to affect developing countries. Uh, large parts of Scotland will be significantly impacted by uh, increased flooding, not least central Glasgow. So, Rachel, what do you think? Have your friends been more aware about climate change now? Do you talk about it in school and when you're out of school? Yes, I think I've talked about it more than I've ever talked about it. I think as well because it's in Glasgow, it's encouraged people to do more research and find out what is actually going on, what can we do to help and what initiatives are available and how can we help to improve the environment for ourselves and for the future generations. What do you want world leaders to do about climate change, Molly? I think this is definitely the big question because it's all fine and well for these world leaders to be talking about initiatives we want to take, but actually delivering on them is what's going to make an impact and often where the most challenges come. So I think I want to see world leaders being more conscious of their own efforts with climate. So it's all fine and well to say, oh, a country should be able to do this and that. We should be meeting these targets on economics, on individuals, on consumers, on firms. But government leaders themselves need to be leading by example because it's through that people listen, people realise what differences they can make. So for example, if you were living in Glasgow last week, you would have noticed the millions of cars, helicopters, private jets coming in. That's not really leading by example in a world where we need to be cutting down on flights and international travel because that obviously is having an adverse effect on climate change. To be fair, I don't really trust world leaders in a way because at the end of the day, they have their jobs because we want to maintain the status quo. They want to increase environmental prosperity. That's their main aim. They want economics, government, economic growth over anything else. And with the climate, we need to accept that it might not be the best thing for the economic climate. But we need to be making these changes because otherwise there will be no economies. There will be mass effects in the future. You're right. I think it's um, important to stress that whilst there may be an economic impact right now, the economic impact of doing nothing is significantly greater. And that's the point that needs to be got across. Rachel, what about you? Do you trust politicians to do what's right? I think that with politicians and world leaders, sometimes I find that there's a certain degree of education required. Maybe they could maybe have people that could inform them of what the latest impacts are and maybe things like using private jets, they would have been more informed on whether to use them or not and whether it was beneficial. I think that there's many things that we, the government leaders could be doing, like encouraging big companies to do more recycling. Like for example, Iron Brew used to do, you could take your glass bottle back and you would receive a discount off your money. And countries abroad are using things like this in initiatives. And they're small and simple things, but that you wouldn't really think of. You think, oh, well, it's only going to recycling. It's not a big deal, but actually it would make the greater impact for everybody. It could be easily fixed. And I think government leaders have a responsibility to maybe help and do that. And so I think that government leaders have the skills required. And so it's whether they act upon this or not. I'm glad you think that government leaders have the skills required. I'm not so sure they do. When you think about your own choices, Molly, for example, buying things in shops, how much do you take environmental impact into account? Well, I think there's two sides to this coin for me. So personally, I'm pescatarian. I don't eat meat other than fish and I only really eat fish for the protein as opposed to because I agree with the fact that fish farming is not a sustainable market. However, when I'm in the shop as a consumer, you don't see what the impact of the things you're buying is on the environment. You don't see the carbon footprint of that food you're buying at the point of purchase. And I think that's a crucial element because at the end of the day, consumers would most likely be more conscious of what we're buying and less likely to buy stuff that comes from places abroad and involves a massive carbon footprint. 
Would you like to see carbon labelling on, on items in the shops then? Yes, I know this has been discussed at COP26 this week and definitely it'd be a great thing because it really kind of just hits home. It makes it a lot more obvious to consumers that it's a problem and we need to be considering it when buying food. So Rachel, what about you? What would help you make the choices that you want to make when you're in the shop? I think the labelling with the amount of carbon emissions would be really good because if you think about it, people didn't think about what was the contents in their foods before the traffic light system came in. Whereas now we're like, oh, has it got a red in it? Has it got an orange? And I think that would be a great system to have in place because it means that people don't need a huge level of knowledge to understand whether it's beneficial or not, meaning that it's very accessible for anybody to have a look at and to improve everybody to be involved. Let's think a bit about how your opinions are different from other generations. Uh, as I said, you're both still at school, you're in fifth year here at the High School of Glasgow. So how do you think that your opinions on environmental issues are different from your parents' generation, I guess it's my generation, and your grandparents' generation, Molly? Well, to be honest, I think we are really different because our grandparents' generations, our parents' generations, haven't really had to deal with this. We had to deal with other stuff like minor strikes that were promoting coal and sources of energy that are unsustainable. However, my generation is now looking at it. Where we're at this point of crisis. It's no longer climate change, it's a climate emergency. And that's why my generation is taking it really seriously. And also why I think it's important we have role models like Greta Thunberg and other climate activists such as Lauren McDonald, who is a bit more close to this school. Because these are people who are showing how we should be running our societies, how we should be making changes. And when we lead by example, um, individuals will follow. Rachel, same to you. How do you think that your opinions are different from your parents' and grandparents' generations? I think everything changes all the time. I think knowledge is gathered and information is key. I think that in previous generations, think things like having milk, people who would come around and reuse the glass bottles, they were probably beneficial, and so it's hard to tell. But then also you have coal mining and things that happened in previous generations, so it's hard to tell. And I think that it's... I think that older generations led by good examples in certain degrees and others maybe not so much and so I think that if we can maybe find information from what previous generations have done and what has been helpful and negative then we can maybe find better views on how to improve today and I think that's maybe my viewpoint whereas other generations would maybe have a slightly different degree of interest. Speaking to somebody from an older generation I've been very excited by how but in my time in Scotland over the past few days, how engaged young generation have been in COP26 and environmental issues. So long may that continue. But for now, Molly Jensen and Rachel Howie from the High School of Glasgow, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having us. Thank you. There were many other interviews that I could have picked. And thank you to everyone who's taken the time to be a guest on the Innovation Forum podcast this year. We'll be back in 2022 with more insight and analysis of Sustainable Business Matters. In the meantime, for anyone celebrating Christmas, happy holidays and all the best for the new year when it comes. We're taking a break, so until next month, I've been Ian Welsh and goodbye.